Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, I'm Andrew Palmer, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. This week, we ask which economists have had the greatest impact on how we view the world around us today. Every so often, we publish a series of schools briefs, a collection of essays covering some of the big ideas in areas ranging from politics to science. The first series of briefs were published in 1975 and focused on the British economy. The briefs were originally intended to prepare UK students for school leaving exams, though we aim to reach the young and curious at heart too. This year we decided to reflect on bigger economic themes by taking a look at the seminal papers that have transformed the discipline and that have disrupted outdated ideas about markets, actors and economies. Our team of economics correspondents from Shanghai to Washington worked with me and other editors in London to whittle our list down to six groundbreaking ideas. In this episode, we're going to look at two of those ideas and the economists behind them. First, our Asia economics editor takes us on a tour of Minsky's financial cycle that says we're doomed to repeat our mistakes. Minsky said the temptation to take on debt tended to grow over time. Economies would steer away from safe financing and turn instead to riskier forms during boom times. And our US economics editor tells us about Akalov and his market for lemons. Not the gin and tonic kind. Something needs to signal, needs to give the buyer some kind of confidence that the good that they're buying is a peach and not a lemon. Let's turn first to Simon Rabinovich, our Asia economics editor, who makes the case for Minsky. Before the global financial crisis of 2008, if I were to say Hyman Minsky was one of the most important economists of our time, you most likely would have said, who? But we live in a post-2008 world. Let's talk about the speed with which we are watching this market deteriorate. We're down over 16%. And Minsky is everywhere now. Uh, Minsky meltdown. The stock market is now down 21%. From Minsky, that stability is destabilizing. The Dow traders are standing there watching in amazement. I don't blame them. The Minsky meltdown. 1929 can happen again. That's Minskyism. To understand how and why an obscure academic like Minsky became one of the most important thinkers in economics, we have to go back to the beginning of his career, to the 1950s. Minsky was an outsider among other economists. For one, he became interested in financial instability at a time of great stability. We are housed in more comfortable homes and apartments. We buy in more efficient stores and shopping centers. And Minsky also shunned the models and equations that were coming to dominate economics. He liked real-world examples and tackling big questions more through logic than through pure maths. His financial instability hypothesis, which would later gain him posthumous fame, was a perfect example. The hypothesis can be explained fairly simply. First, Minsky defined investment. Put crudely, money today can come from one of two sources, the firm's own cash or by borrowing from others. The balance between the two is the key question for the financial system. Minsky also defined three kinds of financing. The first, which he called hedge financing, is the safest. Firms rely on cash flow to repay all their borrowings. 
Here it is explained in a song in Boom Bast Boom, a documentary about financial crisis with puppets. What they say will make or get pays the interest on their debt. The economy is looking pretty fine. The second, speculative financing, is a bit riskier. Speculators borrow cash to buy more shares. Firms rely on their cash flow to repay interest on their borrowings, but must roll over their debt to repay the principal. This should be okay as long as the economy functions smoothly, but a downturn can cause distress. This is where the dangerous stage begins. People borrow more to pay their interest as before. Minsky said the temptation to take on debt tended to grow over time. Economies would steer away from safe financing and turn instead to riskier forms during boom times. He identified a third kind of financing too, Ponzi, the most dangerous. In Ponzi finance, cash flow covers neither principal nor interest. Firms are betting only that the underlying asset will appreciate by enough to cover their liabilities. If that fails to happen, the economy is left exposed. The sudden turn, when the bottom seems to fall out, is now described by many analysts as a Minsky moment. Remember Bernie Madoff in 2008? Coming out of the crisis, Minsky's observations might seem obvious. But let's cast our minds back to the way some of the most sophisticated economists saw the world just a few years earlier. Here's Ben Bernanke on the eve of becoming chairman of the Federal Reserve in 2005. In recent decades, the variability of output and employment has decreased markedly, and recessions have become less frequent and less severe. I believe that the Federal Reserve's success in reducing and stabilizing inflation and inflation expectations is a major reason for this improved economic performance. The crisis was profoundly humbling. Just listen to Alan Greenspan, the man who led the Fed through America's boom years in the 1990s and the early 2000s. This is at a congressional hearing after the crisis. And what I'm saying to you is, yes, I found a flaw. I don't know how significant or permanent it is, but I've been very distressed by that fact. But if I may, may I just finish an answer to the, the question previously? You, you found a flaw in the reality? A flaw in the model that I perceived is the critical functioning structure that defines how the world works. That flaw was a rather big one, a belief that modern theories had solved the basic problem of economics, how to prevent dangerously big booms and busts. The problem, as Minsky understood, was that booms and busts are part of the DNA of advanced economies. Stability breeds over-optimism, and when everyone is over-optimistic, the system takes on too much risk. It veers towards the Ponzi finance that Minsky warned about. Even those who see the dangers find it hard to avoid them. As the subprime crisis played out in America in 2007, Citigroup's chief executive at the time, Chuck Prince, uttered this memorable line. As long as the music is playing, you've got to get up and dance. We're still dancing. The music did stop and Citigroup ended up losing tens of billions of dollars and getting bailed out by the government. Having been mostly ignored while alive, Minsky has posthumously become something of a star. We're all Minskyites now, quipped Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize-winning economist. Central bankers seem to agree. Suffice it to say that with the financial world in turmoil, Minsky's work has become required reading, and it's getting the recognition it richly deserves. 
That's Janet Yellen, current chairman of the Federal Reserve, speaking in 2009. The dramatic events of the past year and a half were a classic case of the kind of systemic breakdown that he and relatively few others envisioned. So Minsky, belatedly, has had his moment. But how long will it last? His own theory suggests that his appeal will wane. We are still recovering from the financial crisis and so inclined to consult gloomy thinkers like Minsky. But as time goes on and the economy recovers, will we still want to listen to him? That will be the real test. That was Simon Rabinovich reporting from Shanghai. Finally, we look at the role of information in economics. When George Akerlof wrote his paper, The Market for Lemons, he'd only just completed his PhD. His hypothesis on how information asymmetry dictates market outcomes ruffled the feathers of many. Like Minsky, he struggled initially to win over the academic establishment. The Market for Lemons was rejected outright by three leading journals. One publisher even wrote, if this is correct, economics would be different. Despite that initial scepticism, the paper was published in 1970 and would later win its author the Nobel Prize. Here with me to discuss Mr. Akerlof's revolutionary paper is Henry Kerr, our US economics editor, on the line from Washington, D.C. Henry, let's dive right into the market for so-called lemons. Akerlof uses the example of a used car lot to show that there's an inherent problem in the markets with asymmetric information. So what was he talking about there? The, the problem that Akerlof is getting at is that when you buy a used car, you struggle to tell its quality. And it's not just that, it's that there's asymmetric information. What that means is the person selling the used car has a better idea how good that car is than you do. OK, and this is where he uses the terminology of peaches and lemons. Yes, Exactly. So a peach is a good used car. A lemon is a bad one that's going to break as soon as you drive it out of the parking lot. So when, as a buyer, you're faced with the prospect of potentially buying a lemon rather than a peach, you have to somehow manage that risk. And how, in Akerlof's paper, does one go about that? Well, as a buyer, let's say a peach is worth $1,000 to you and a lemon is worth only $500 to you because a lemon is worse than a peach. You're not going to be willing to pay $1,000 for a car that comes with a risk of being a lemon. So you're going to shave your offer slightly. You might offer, say, $750 for a car that has a roughly even chance of being a peach or a lemon. And uh, what then happens to people who are offering peaches? Well, if I'm offering a peach, maybe I would have sold it at $900. Maybe I would have sold it even at $800. But at $750, that's too little. So if I'm selling a car that I know for sure to be a peach, I might reject these offers which have been discounted because the buyer sees a risk that it's a lemon. And as you trace this logic out, what happens in the end to the, to the market is only lemon dealers exist. Is that right? That's right, exactly. Because buyers know that no car salesman is going to sell a car that they know for sure to be a peach at this discounted rate, they know that the only car they're ever going to be sold, the only offer that will ever be accepted, is one that's made for a lemon. So as a result, the only cars that ever get traded are lemons, and they get traded at the price that they would have been traded at anyway. It's just that peaches don't get sold at all. Good cars that potentially could have got bought end up never coming to market in, in Akolov's world, um, which is, you know, a terrible outcome. So how does one overcome this problem of, of information asymmetry? Well, one of the ways you can overcome it is with some kind of signal of quality. 
So this in the used car market might be some kind of guarantee. It might be that the uh, car salesman needs uh, some to maintain his reputation and that his brand is a signal of quality. Something needs to signal, needs to give the buyer some kind of confidence that the good that they're buying is is a peach and not a lemon. All right. And then let's let's broaden this out now, because obviously this problem exists in many other contexts than just used cars. And think a little bit about the labour market, where, again, it's very hard to know exactly what uh, an applicant for a job is bringing to the table. So signalling has a role to play here, too. Yes, exactly. So in many ways, employers face a similar problem uh, to the buyer of used cars if they struggle to understand how good a potential employee is going to be good at their job. And one of the uh, developments in the information asymmetry literature was to show that education might actually fulfill this signaling function. It might be that if I'm an employer and I see someone with a degree from a top university, it's not necessarily that that degree makes them any better at doing the job, but it signals that they have uh, a certain level of ability which means they're likely to be good at the job once they once they do start. And that kind of changes the way we think about education in general, rather than making people more productive and better um, in their future careers. It's just a label. Yes, absolutely. So it's usually the case that people think about education as something that's an investment in human capital, something that will pay off later because it will make you more productive. And Michael Spence, the economist who first wrote down this model of education as a signal, was keen to emphasise later on that he didn't think this was a literal description of the world, that education was only a signal and none of that making you more productive story was true. But nonetheless, it's important to recognise that education probably does fulfil this signalling function. And to the extent that it does, it's something that's beneficial to the individual who gets the education because they can now earn a higher wage by signalling how brilliant they are. It's something that's beneficial perhaps to the university who gets paid a tuition fee, but it's not as beneficial to society. Education only benefits society to the extent that it makes workers more productive. Now, even though these ideas have been around for, for a very long time, Akalov's paper was published in, in 1970, we still see the ways in which information asymmetry can gum up markets. And one example uh, recently was in the state of Washington, where uh, firms were banned from checking job applicants' credit scores, another signalling mechanism that's used often uh, in the job market. Now, that ban was on the basis that credit scores discriminated against poor, black or young people who tend to have lower ratings. But in fact, the result of that ban was to leave um, those groups with fewer jobs. Why was that? Yes, so the idea there is that credit scores are a signal which allow someone who comes from a disadvantaged background uh, to signal that they are going to be a good employee. So presumably, if you're an employer and you're sceptical for whatever reason about employing someone from a disadvantaged group, if they come to you with a good credit score, then that might be one more kind of tick on the box that helps you get over the hurdle of employing them. If that's then banned, then suddenly those groups might find it more difficult to signal their ability. So it's actually the case that a good credit score is more common among disadvantaged groups than, say, a good education. So it was actually a useful signal and taking it away made it harder overall for those groups to get jobs. At least that's the theory of the economists who who studied the impact of this ban and found that it reduced employment amongst those disadvantaged groups. Well, let's end with a quote from Mr. Akerlof himself. This is his Nobel Prize lecture in 2001. And he said, 
Economies like lions are wild and dangerous. Modern behavioural economics has rediscovered the wild side of macroeconomic behaviour. Behavioural economists are becoming lion tamers. The task is as intellectually exciting as it is difficult. So, Henry, in your view, will Akalov himself be remembered as one of the great lion tamers? I think he will, Andrew. Information economics is really a key part now of the economics literature as a whole. And Akalov is largely responsible for that because this was the first paper in, in, that, in that area of the discipline. So he, he tamed the lion of information economics. Fantastic. Thanks, Henry. Thanks, Andrew. That's all for this week's Economist Asks. You can also find past and upcoming briefs in print and online at economist.com. Future delights include the Keynesian multiplier and the Nash equilibrium. Do join us again next week. I'm Andrew Palmer. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.